Well, we're into chapter 9 this morning. How many of you have ever had a promise made to you that was broken or have had to break a promise? Um, when I was a little girl in Newfoundland, one year my aunt said, I'm going to send you a gift at Christmas time. It's going to be a little suitcase, and you're going to be able to come and visit me in the summertime. And so uh, Christmas time came and a suitcase arrived. And at that point in my life, it was such a broken, a broken home. It was so dysfunctional that as a little girl, I was about nine or 10 years old, I thought, if I go up to Toronto, I'm never coming back. And that says a sad thing because that would have meant leaving my mom, but, but the, the home was so sad. And so Christmas came, the suitcase came, the summer came, but I never went. For whatever reason, the promise was broken. It could have been due to something else that had come up, a, a job opportunity. She was a single mother, a single woman, I should say, and she, she meant well. Well, it's interesting promises. They can be broken, they can be kept. I also remember my friend at the church I previously went to, when she had her little boy, she was trying to instill in him that his word was his bond and a promise made is a promise kept. And she'd say to him, a promise is a promise. And one morning, just before school, she went out on the patio uh, to see how to dress him. And while she was out there in her house coat, he, being a little stinker, <laughs> slid the patio door shut and put the lock on. <laughs> and she said, I kept knocking and saying, you open this door right now, you open this door. And the colder I got, the madder I got. And he just looked out here at her and he grinned. And so she said, you let me in here. And he said, you promise you won't spank me? <laughs> and she said, I promise. You really promise? So she said, yes. And so reluctantly, trustingly, he opened the door. And the minute she walked in, he said, now, you remember a promise is a promise. <laughs> and so it was really interesting, you know, and I thought about that. Because today we're going to talk about Paul and the promise of God. In chapter 1, he referred uh, in verse 2 to the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And in fact, he goes on in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that same gospel of God. Why? Because he says it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this morning we're... Um, in chapter 9 of your study guide, and I thought this was one of the best chapter in terms of explaining things to you. If you've read it, uh, you may have to go over it again because there's so much information, but turn to page 134. Um, one of the first questions that Paul, or one of the questions in your book was, what was Paul's um, response to, to what was happening to his kin? Um, the very first sentence, um, he affirms things, first of all. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. And he speaks of the one who is the witness of his conscience, the Holy Spirit. He knows that the human conscience is fallible. And he, it can be conditioned by our culture. But he's claiming here that his conscience has been enlightened by the spirit of truth. So why such a strong statement? Well, he wants his readers of this inspired letter to see that the depth of his sincerity is his concern. 
And when you looked in your study guide, one of the first questions on page 134, how does Paul feel? What feelings does he actually write to them? Just anybody, what were the two feelings that he described? Sorrow. <coughs> Sorrow, that's right. What else? Happiness. Anxious, you know, anguish. Not anxious. He wasn't anxious. Great but he heaviness. had great heaviness, depending on your translation. Yeah. And this was for his kinsmen, the Jews. Now, he was a Jew, and he had never lost his sense of identity or his love for his fellow Jews. And he makes such a strong statement that because many of his, his, his fellow Jews were suspicious, he, he makes this statement. He wants them to know that he is loyal to them, and he's pa a patriot. But because God had used Paul to bring so many Gentiles into the family of God, he was viewed as a traitor and one that had lost any natural affections for his own people. So he opens chapter 10. Later when you, you do that, you'll see he has another deep desire. His deep desire is that they would be saved. So in verse 3 of our chapter 9, he expresses the fact that he's so desperate for the Jews to be saved that he would ask God to cut him off from Christ if that would bring their salvation. Such was his love for his fellow Jews. In offering to become himself cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his fellow Jews. He was here implying that Israel herself stands under judgment. His kinsmen stood under judgment. Now we know that he had just finished chapter 8, proclaiming his absolute confidence in God's future salvation for his people, and that nothing can stop God's plan to glorify his believing people, eventually with Christ. No one can oppose him, and nothing at all shall separate us from the God who will give us all that he intends. So here today in chapter 9, he's expressing some deep emotions over the fact that most of his fellow Jews have rejected Christ. Is there no power in the gospel? How could the privileged people of God have failed to recognize their Messiah? Since the gospel had been promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures, why did they not embrace it? If the good news was truly God's saving power first for the Jews, why were they not the first to accept it? How could their unresponsiveness be, you know, reconciled with God's covenant promises? How did the conversion of the Gentiles fit in with God's plan? And what was God's future purpose for both Jews and Gentiles? For the next three chapters, we're going to be looking at different aspects of God's relation to Israel, past, present, and future. But as Paul looks at the nation of Israel, he could see that it could cast doubt on the faithfulness of God, the reliability of his character. God had made so many promises of salvation in the Old Testament to Israel. And yet, as the apostle looks around, from, from most Jews seem to be hardened toward the gospel. If God's plans for his historic people, Israel, had not come to fruition, is his word reliable? If God had gone back on his promises to the Jews, then can he be trusted to keep his promises to us? Paul must show that the gospel of God the gospel that he's given us does not contradict his word in the past and that his character is completely trustworthy. It is for this reason Paul has to talk about Israel's role in the light of the good news of Christ. By this time in Paul's life, it had become clear that most Jews had not responded to the gospel. And as he preached to the Jews, there was minimal response. But when he turned to the Gentiles, there was a great response. So as he pens this letter to the church at Rome, he's writing to a church that is largely Gentile.
Now, how does this situation fit in with God's promises in the Old Testament? Did he not promise to send the Messiah to Israel, to glorify his people Israel, and to bless Israel in the kingdom that was coming? How can that promise be fulfilled in a church that was largely Gentile? These are the issues Paul is trying to answer in chapters 9 to 11. In fact, Romans 9 to 11 is not just about Israel, it's about God. In verse 6, he states strongly, it is not as though God's word has failed. Paul will show in these next three chapters God's consistency in keeping his promises. So look at page 134 of your study. Paul's great sorrow is that the current generation of Israel seem to have lost the privileges that God has given his kinsmen. Look at the list, and I was so appreciative of, of the list that's there to show and remind us just what they had been given. It's, it's a great study guide. I mean, you can go back over it if, if a lot of it, there was a lot of reading this week, I realize that. But so many references of scripture that, that clarify Paul's writing. Paul says of his kinsmen, they are Israelites, and to them belong, and look at the first two. You see it there? The blessing of adoption. Adoption into God's family. They were his chosen. He said in Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I call my son. That's a poetic way of saying that he had chosen Israel, and he thought of them as a son. And then look at the glory, and this was really interesting. The glory refers to that cloud which led Israel by day and by night that rested over the tabernacle. And as it stayed over the tabernacle, they would stay, and when it moved, they moved. This was known as the Shekinah glory of God. And according to the Old Testament, the Shekinah was the visible manifestation of the invisible God. I'll repeat that. The Shekinah was the invisible manifestation of the invisible God. The glorious phenomenon occurred when God visited his people. God's Shekinah glory was witnessed at Mount Sinai in Exodus 30, 24, in the Holy of Holies of the Tabernacle. In fact, in, in Exodus 40 and 38, we read, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all Israel. And that stood out in that verse, in the sight of all Israel. They saw God's manifested power. They saw it. They had such witness of it all throughout that journey. The Shekinah was a radiant cloud of brilliant light within a cloud that signaled the immediate presence of God. And just a little aside right now, because I thought I can't let this go by without talking about this glory, because another manifestation of the Shekinah glory happened at the transfiguration of Jesus. It revealed his true nature as the Son of God. That glory shone from the Son of God. God's glory was up on that Mount of Transfiguration in the form of his Son. Jesus Christ had been praying, and, and the description is in Matthew 17, and it's in Mark. He'd been praying, and while praying, his face changed, and his body began to glow. The light was emanating from within, Jesus glowing outward. First his face, then his body, then his clothes lit up. His disciples used words that described it as if lightning was coming forth from Jesus. The luminous garments he wore were dazzling white, like pure snow. The glistening light was brilliant, and Peter and John both gave witness to this as they beheld his glory. So for Jesus to be identified with the Shekinah was to be equated with the presence of God himself. He was God. And one day we will be with him and share in that glory. 
Paul has already written in chapter 8 about the glory that will be revealed when we see Christ. And when he was writing another letter to the church at Colossae, he referred to them as Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's us. The hope of glory is the fulfillment of Christ in us. It's God's promise to restore us in all creation. And it's not just a wishful thought, but it's a confident, expectant, joyful knowledge that we're being changed by God and will one day see Christ face to face. Christ's presence in us is the hope of glory. And this truth is full of glorious riches. Our once dead, darkened spirits are made alive. He's in our hearts, and we know that. There's life beyond this early existence, a life that'll be glorious beyond all imagination. And I think we don't even understand, we could never fully understand of what's going to be revealed. So let's continue. Look at the list on page 134. We've done adoption and glory. Now here we see the, the covenants, God's covenants he'd made with them, the contract, so to speak, the promises of blessing, his words in the law, the sacrificial system to deal with sin. And in addition, the Jews were related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not that the significance is about them per se, because they were just ordinary men, but because God had entered into a covenant with them. And that covenant was to be valid, not just to them, but to their descendants. But probably the greatest blessing, as you look down the list, promised to them, was the Messiah. He was to arise from the people of Israel, but from a divine point of view, he is more. He is God. In fact, in verse 5, it says, To them, Israel, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, that's his human ancestry, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So when you look at all they had, isn't that tragic? Very tragic. So this chapter plus the next two will, will deal with Israel. Today we're going to see a defense of God's character. His word has not failed. His promises are true. Next week, Eva will help us understand where the Jews went wrong, the reason they're not saved. And then in chapter 11, Jackie will cover God's future for the Jews. So let's take up again at verse 6, and let's read it together. Verse 6 to verse 13. <coughs> but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Clearly there are two Israels, 
Now, we might refer to the Israel which is physical by birth or by descent, but there's a spiritual Israel. And what is the spiritual Israel Paul has in mind? Well, if you go to Galatians 6 and 16, you can write that down and look at it another time, looking at the context of where the Israel of God is referred to. That's Galatians 6, 16. Paul refers to the Israel of God, and it's clear he's referring to the church, the believing church. Those believers who in faith are trusting in Christ. So all Jews belong to the larger Israel by birth, but only those Jews called by God belong to the true Israel. See in verse 11 at the end, because of him who calls. So Paul needs to explain very clearly what he means by that fact, that not all who have descended from Israel belong to Israel. So he's going to turn to Abraham to get the point across. Jews belong to Abraham in different ways. Yet those who claim him as their physical ancestor are his children. But only those who have him as their spiritual father are his offspring. Now here's where God promises, and and the promise refers to those who will be regarded as Abraham's offspring. Children of the promise. And then Paul quotes Genesis 18, where Abraham is told by the Lord, who appeared with two others at the tent of the Oaks of Mamre in the heat of the day. And you remember the story. You know how it went. When, when God promised that in a year's time he would return and Abraham would have a son, Sarah behind the tent snickered. And the Lord said, why did you laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. He says, yes, you did laugh. So imagine arguing with, with the Lord. <laughs> but she did. And of course, so do we sometimes. Well, um, Ishmael, Abraham's other son, if you've, if you've read the story, had her by Hagar, the slave, whose descendants were going to be the Gentiles. That's where the Gentiles originated. It wasn't their line through which God would bring Messiah. It was through the promised son not yet conceived. Now, we know nothing is too difficult for God. A year later, just as he promised, here's this promise again, Isaac was born. God intervened to enable Sarah, who was infertile, not just old, because sometimes I'd look at that and think, well, she was old, so I mean, everything's passed by her, it's done, she's done with her menses, no babies. And yet, it says here, she was infertile, even in those early days, she was infertile. So it was like a real double whammy, because she wasn't just old, she had never been able to conceive. But God, whose redemptive plan no one can thwart, performed this action. Now, there are those that would argue, oh, well, Isaac was the favored kid because Ishmael was born to a slave. So Paul, in writing this letter, and remember a few lessons ago, I said Paul is writing to this imaginary person who would be arguing with him. So he's sitting down and, you know, and thinking this argument is going to come through about this. And he thought about what he was writing. And he had to uh, address another Old Testament story to qualify what he wants to get across the story of Rebekah and Isaac. He clarifies by saying that these two boys, twins, were conceived by one single act of conception and stipulates that though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, that would qualify them, that God was saying the older will serve the younger. And we know the story. Out comes Esau and then Jacob, and God appointed Jacob over Esau to carry on the line of promise. And in verse 11, we get the reason. 
In this way, God's purpose in election might stand. There's that term, election. The Greek word for election comes from the root, to call. And it means calling out or choosing. This was not a matter of chance, but of determination of God's own call. Not because of works, the boys hadn't done anything, but because of him who calls, because of God. Has he called you? As you read his word, does it ring true? Do you know what he says is true? Have you come to him? It's a wonderful thing to know that he called to us and made it possible for him to, to come to him. So right now, what I want you to do is put your marker in Romans 9 and then turn back to John 10. John 10. And we'll see what Jesus said in John chapter 10. John chapter 10 are the words of Jesus. Jesus is painting a picture, explaining to his hearers what would, it would be something that they could identify with. And so um, he talks about the sheep hearing his voice in verse 3. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And then in another portion, he says in verse 14, if you look down at that, John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, just turn the page here of this thin paper, and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. The mention of voice, of calling. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay my, down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. It's interesting. I've gone down to the farm that George and his brother owned, and he has a herd of sheep. And one day we went out in the field, and they were all there in the, in the field, far away from us. And we kept going, here, sheepy, sheepy. We, I don't know how you call a sheep, but anyway. <laughs> so they stood over there. And then my brother-in-law came out of the door. And he walked over to the fence, and those sheep came so quickly. And I thought, he hadn't even said anything. And then he said, watch this. And, I mean, we were hoping to pat them or whatever. And he walked away from us all up the field, and they followed him. And I thought, what a beautiful example. Jesus knew what he was doing when he was talking to these people. When he talked about farming things, he knew that they were an agrarian culture. They could identify with seeds being planted and sheep coming to the shepherd, all these things. And so look at verse 24 of 10. They gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them, and, and just think about that now. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so we look at that, and uh, no one can snatch us out of his hand. But what stood out to me 
was my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. God has given Jesus a people. And Jesus had said in John 6 and 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never in, in no wise cast out. And, uh, you know, I've, I've looked at all these verses this morning. It was difficult because we're talking about predestination and election. But these are Jesus' words. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What wonderful words of promise that those who believe will be kept secure until that day of Jesus' return. But equally as important is the fact that there has been a plan even before the foundation of the world. And so we read in in chapter 8, verse 30, last week, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we take great comfort in it because it speaks of our security in Christ. It starts out by saying that something was predestined, which means to decide on beforehand. So a decision had to be made beforehand of our coming to Christ. And that's not to deny that we came to a point where we decided to follow Christ but God decided that before that God decided that before we did. The language used speaks of God foreknowing and predestining us to be conformed to his image. And this predestining happened long before the creation of the world. Ephesians 1 and 4 tells us that even as he, God, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I think of another verse, we love him because he first loved us. But we're described as those who have been called according to his purpose. So now let's go back to verse 13 of John 9, where Rebecca was told the other will serve the younger, the older will serve the younger. And the sentence that seems to be, as Douglas Moo says, a lightning rod in the debate over this passage. Where did this come from? And so this is a quote from Malachi 1, 2-3. The word hate may simply mean loveless. But Douglas Moo, referring to the Old Testament context, points in a different direction. The quote from Malachi is not referring to the individual Jacob or Esau but to the peoples they fathered, Jacob with the Israelites and Esau with the Edomites, and is referring to their historical destinies. But as I looked it over, I was trying to find out what did this mean? I've struggled with this. John Stott puts another focus on this sentence, and he says it's to understand this contrast between love and hate as a Hebrew idiom, a turn of phrase, And so if you lived in Newfoundland, every now and again, well, more than every now and again, they had a a, a turn of phrase. If something happened that they thought shouldn't have happened, they go, now that's a sin. I'm not sure that's a sin. And it had nothing to do with sin. It had nothing to do with God or repentance. It was a turn of phrase that meant, what a shame. 
It could be anything. My car broke down. Oh, that's a sin. So it's an idiom. So this Hebrew idiom in this portion of scripture is a turn of phrase for preference. Jacob I have preferred. Esau I haven't preferred. But here's another example, and I really was so thankful that John Stott brought this out. When you read Luke 14 and 26, Jesus says in it, anyone who comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciples. Now we know Jesus spoke love, but what he was saying here, he was using that idiom for prefer. In other words, if you want to be his disciple, you have to prefer him over mother, father, sister, brother, even your own life. And we know that, don't we? Because when we come to him, there are many here today. In fact, I talked to a young couple on the weekend that when they became believers, the parents turned on them. And it was as though they disowned them. They just couldn't understand why they left their Catholic upbringing. And so it, it, does, it does cost, doesn't it? Sometimes a wall goes up. But Jesus says that unless you prefer me before even life itself, you can't be my disciple. And so how glad we are that once we've come to him, there's that yearning in our heart, that desire to please him, to do whatever it is he wants. And we're weak and we fail, and there are times we don't live up to, to what he's worthy of. But there is that desire there, that we, he, we know he's overall, and we prefer him. So we know Jesus spoke of love, and, and to, to follow him, you had to put him first. So... Um, the answer to that question, has God's promises failed? No, his promise was fulfilled in Israel within Israel. So now let's go to 14, 29. John or Romans? In, in Romans. Did I say John? Okay. Thanks, Jeanette. <laughs> Romans 9. We're going to go 14 to 29. Okay, we just finished with 13. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now we're back in Romans, verses 14 to 29. So let's read it together. I like hearing your voices, and I know then you're, you're with me. Okay, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use 
and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Thank you for reading. <coughs> Now, right out of the gate, Paul is prepared for what might be a question. You see that? Is God unjust? Is there injustice against God? And he, threatened, and, and he threatens to abandon Israel because of their sin. He, he quotes Exodus in the context that Israel has just rebelled against God, and he will abandon them because of their sin. Now, if God had been just, he would have wiped them out completely, but instead he relents. And then he proclaims his very nature to Moses. His justice has been mixed with compassion, and he has mercy on whom he wishes. So when you look at these things, and you look at your, your verse 15 and, and all the different quotes, it's good to be able to go back and, and read um, these early Old Testament scriptures. Because Paul is saying, no, God's not unjust. He could have abandoned Israel because of that sin. But instead, he relents. And he proclaims his nature to Moses. There's a conversation that goes on um, in Exodus. Listen to it. Moses desires to see the glory of God. Show me, I pray thee, thy glory. And what is God's answer? He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. The glory of God is therefore his goodness made visible.